I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Republican leaders know where the fugitive foreign agent Gall Luft is. Does Senator Ron Johnson demanding immunity for Luft so that this multinational con man can testify to the House of Representatives? Does he know where Gall Luft is? Does Chairman James Comer still insisting Luft must testify despite the damning revelation that he has been under indictment in this country for 20 months for allegedly bribing a Trump advisor on behalf of Chinese interest? Does Chairman Comer know where Gall Luft is? Does Congresswoman Nancy Mace still on board this sinking Luft ship and calling him, quote, our witness and promising we are going to work as hard as we can and deliver as much evidence as we can to the American people so that they can decide whether or not Joe Biden should be in prison? Does Representative Mace know where Gall Luft is? Because if the answer to any of these questions is yes... Or if the answer to the question, do any of them know how to reach him through intermediaries, is yes, then why have they not communicated to the proper authorities the whereabouts of this fugitive from the American justice system who is a foreign spy? And why has the Department of Justice not interviewed them about what they know about Gall Luft and how long they have known it? Drag Johnson, Comer, and Mace in for questioning and do it now. The Republican Hunter Biden scandal fairy tale has now escalated to the point where it is no longer possible to trust Chairman Comer, Representative Mace, Senator Johnson and others in their confounded party with access to any sensitive or secure information about the United States of America. 
Moreover, their continuing presence in the House and the Senate today may endanger the safety and security of this country. They are figuratively in bed with a foreign spy. Those three and others are not just publicly following down an endless trail of deceit, defamation, and international espionage, the discredited, quote, missing Biden witness, unquote, now under indictment on one charge of bribing a Trump transition team official on behalf of Chinese interests, on another charge of breaking the Iran embargo, on four charges of brokering illegal arms deals, and of being a fugitive from justice from this country. That would be bad enough if they were just doing that. But Johnson wants immunity for a fugitive to testify to Congress. Mace calls a fugitive our witness. Comer continues to push the lie that a foreign agent was indicted because he had, quote, information on the Bidens. Gal Loof was, in fact, indicted first and then made his false claim of Biden information later. It turns out Luft was indicted under seal on November 1, 2022. I was mistaken here yesterday when I said he was indicted in February. February was when he was finally apprehended and arrested. And it was April when he became a fugitive by skipping bail. Apart from the stark reality, Gall faces 100 years in prison for crimes against the United States of America about which he left a trail a mile wide and a thousand miles long. He is charged with bribing an advisor to then-President-elect Trump on behalf of Chinese interests. He is an Israeli agent. He is an accused gun runner. It's so bad that even the Wall Street Journal has described Luft as on the lamb and said he had absconded. Apart from all that, James Comer, Ron Johnson, Nancy Mace, and the others have jumped fully and irredeemably into this bottomless pit of con man guilt with him. Besides all that, there is something subtler and far more dangerous. Comer still wants him to testify. Mace still wants him to testify. Johnson wants to give him immunity for his crimes to testify. Do they know where he is? How would Comer and Johnson arrange for Gal Luft's testimony when his whereabouts are unknown and he is considered a fugitive from justice in two countries? Do they know where he is? If so, why are they not fulfilling their obligations to the Constitution, their obligations as Americans, their obligations under the law? If any of them knows where Gall Luft is or how the process to bring him to Washington to testify to Congress would even begin, and they have not turned this information over to the authorities, shouldn't the Department of Justice be examining their conduct and whether they are in fact shielding directly or indirectly a fugitive? The Department of Justice and the FBI must open investigations into Comer, Johnson and Mace today. Their remarks about Gall Luft were not made as protected speech on the House floor or the Senate floor. They were made as each preened and pranced and pretended in the lights of television studios. If they have no knowledge of the whereabouts and are merely being grandstanding Republican amateurs, they can quickly clear themselves and their party from what is otherwise going to take the shape of a conspiracy 
with this alleged criminal, Gal Luft. And yes, grandstanding Republican amateurs. I appreciate how redundant two of those three terms are. Also, Jack Smith is back at work. We have basically no other details. An NBC reporter staked out the Prettyman courthouse yesterday in the Washington jet exhaust heat and saw Thomas Wyndham enter. And Thomas Wyndham is perhaps Jack Smith's MVP, most valuable prosecutor. The implication is that since the Smith grand jury hearing testimony about the Trump-led efforts to stop the transfer of power, that it'd be fake elector schemes and January 6th coup, since that grand jury meets there and Wyndham is working with that grand jury, the implication is that grand jury met yesterday, but no recognizable witnesses were seen entering or exiting the building. So that is literally all we have. We do know the Fonnie Willis grand jury has been impaneled two of them, actually, under the guidance of the fill-in judge Robert McBurney. And Robert McBurney oversaw the special Fulton County grand jury for eight months. Is he the only judge in Atlanta? Two sets of 23 grand jury members were chosen yesterday. One will hear the Trump-Georgia find-me-votes case and the other won't. McBurney revealed that whichever one is the real grand jury and whichever one is the placebo group will meet secretly two days a week for two months and will decide what to do with the evidence produced by the special grand jury. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution provides this spectacular aside. Among the 100 or so citizens in the pre-selection pool yesterday was, quote, someone who described himself as an explosion prevention dispatcher. And boom goes the dynamite. By the way, Anna Bauer of Lawfare Media has provided the best explanation yet of why there was a special Georgia Trump grand jury, and now there is a, I guess, not so special Georgia Trump grand jury, and I'll just read what she threaded. Quote, Long story short, special grand juries are used to investigate complex issues of inquiry, like organized crime or a multi-state plot to overturn a presidential election. Under Georgia law, special grand juries can't return indictments. They can only recommend indictments, unquote. And we know that this one did, and we know that it believed it witnessed perjury, and we just don't know any details. And while justice takes two small steps forward, the Department of Justice, as always, continues to frequently pull society backwards towards the gaping maw of another round of Trump fascism, one that would not be so easy to escape from as last time. Incredibly, DOJ lawyers are asking a federal appeals court to block the order from Judge Amy Berman Jackson that Trump must be deposed in the Peter Strzok Lisa Page lawsuit. It is the DOJ's position that a president can abuse his power, meddle with the management structure of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, slander its employees, defame and try to get IRS audits of anybody who works for him as long as he's president. And you can't sue him and depose him. It's stupid. It's goddamned stupid. When you step back from the last eight years of American pre-fascism and you ask, how the hell could we have possibly gotten here 
The answer is nonsense like this quote from the DOJ motion in defense of Trump. That this case involves the deposition of a former president rather than a sitting president does not diminish the separation of powers concerns. It is exactly the same logic and loyalty to the written word instead of the meaning of the written word that led the Weimar Republic to let Hitler out of prison nine months into his five-year sentence. Trump lives and dies, and those around him live and die by manipulating the law. I'm sorry, we must manipulate it back at him. He is himself a personal, one-man, cold civil war, and he must be treated as such at every opportunity. And this is one of those opportunities. As is this one, the obvious play, Trump waiting until literally 30 minutes before the deadline to file it Tuesday night to make his demand that the judge he appointed grant him a postponement of his Miami classified documents trial, probably until after the 2024 election, because he lives and dies by manipulating the law. And if he is not elected president again, he will be in the penitentiary. If he is elected president, he will manipulate the law. He will free himself, or he will get the charges dropped, or both. And before you recoil at the idea of making the law just this elastic, you know, rule against the clear and present danger to all of our futures now and again. Go anti-domestic terrorist just occasionally before you worry that, well, that will stretch the law out of shape. And what happens when the other side gets the DOJ? Just remember what President Lincoln did during the actual Civil War. The only other threat in our history as great as Trump. President Lincoln decided that to keep the country in one piece, he needed emergency powers. So he granted them to himself. Then he used them to do a lot of things including the suspension of habeas corpus. He used them to free the slaves. He used them to ignore the Supreme Court. What the hell are we asking here? We're not suspending anything, freeing anyone, ignoring any court. Just don't let a judge with a record of actually presiding over cases like gun possession and assaulting a prosecutor who has been in charge of a courtroom for a total of 14 days in her life and who was appointed by Trump rule in Trump's favor in order to let him get away with crimes that threaten and continue to threaten representative government in our country. <sighs> also of interest here, if you did not watch the baseball all-star game last night, you got a lot of company. 43 years ago, when the population was one-third smaller than it is now, five times as many people watched the baseball all-star game on TV as did last night. Well, if you did not watch, that means you missed the worst uniforms in baseball history, but you also missed a very fast, very subtle game highlight that was made not by any player, not by any manager, not by any announcer, but by the fans in the stands in Seattle chanting something 
What did they chant? They chanted... That's next. This is an all-new edition of Countdown. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray, rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. This is SportsCenter. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, okay, fans, what do these 10 players comprise? Shane Bieber, Alex Bregman, Melky Cabrera, Robinson Cano, Elias Diaz, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Eric Hosmer, Mariano Rivera, Giancarlo Stanton, Mike Trout. After the Colorado Rockies catcher Diaz pinch hit a two-run homer off Felix Bautista in the eighth inning at Seattle to lead the National League to a 3-2 win over the American League in the All-Star Game last night, those are the baseball All-Star Game most valuable players since 2012. Two Hall of Famers, a maybe, and a lot of no's. 
No knock on Elias Diaz. Unsung heroes are great, and he told his friends yesterday he was going to be the all-star MVP, which is either clairvoyance or annoying overconfidence. But this is his ninth season. He has 51 career homers, and he's a 248 career hitter. From 1963 to 1970, the all-star MVPs were Johnny Callison and... Juan Marichal, Willie Mays, Willie Mays again, Willie McCovey, Joe Morgan, Tony Perez, Brooks Robinson, Frank Robinson, and Carl Yastrzemski. Eight Hall of Famers out of nine guys, one of them twice. The National League ends the American League's nine-game winning streak, and the AL is still 21-4-1 since 1997, and it really wasn't much of a game. In a moment, I'll tell you why it will never be much of a game again and why the TV audience is about a fifth of what it was in 1980. In fact, the highlight was supplied not by the players, nor camaraderie, nor Elias Diaz, nor anything else, but by something that usually has no factor whatsoever in the All-Star Games, something that is usually too quiet to believe. The crowd in the stands at Seattle provided the highlight. When the impending free agent and by definition most valuable player, he's two players, he's a hitter and a pitcher, so how valuable is he? He's worth any other two players combined. Shohei Otani, soon to be free agent, when he came to the plate, the Seattle crowd, which made a home for Ichiro Suzuki for 14 years, started to chant at Otani, come to Seattle, come to Seattle. They were my MVPs. I'll drop this because you already know more about this game than you need to, but I have to mention the uniforms. The tradition is over, and the players are not wearing their regular season, regular team uniforms. They were wearing special generic American League and National League jobs. Players wore genuinely ugly, sick green caps that were the worst in baseball history, uh, at least since the awful brief rage for those white-topped Baker's caps of the 1990s, Mets and Royals and Orioles. The National Leaguers' pants apparently never showed up to Seattle for the game, so they seem to be wearing black chinos. And the American League shirts seem to have been cut from discarded, creased, sharkskin suits. More importantly, even if the uniforms had been great, even if they'd been the best of all time, what, please, is the point of making sure there is an all-star player from every team if you can't see what team every player is from? Thank you, Nancy Faust. If you are less than 50 years old, I would like to offer my condolences to you on the fact that you did not get to see the baseball all-star game when it was, at worst, the third biggest sporting event of the year behind the Super Bowl and the World Series. In the time before televised ubiquity and interleague play, it really was that. It was breathtaking to know that you were watching a field full of Hall of Famers and that a National League Hall of Fame pitcher like Fergie Jenkins would be facing an American League Hall of Fame batter like Mickey Mantle for the only time in their lives. And that year after year, you would see literally dozens of matchups that would never happen again and teammates who would never be teammates again and had never been teammates before and players who wouldn't be on national TV again until sometime next year. To say nothing of a game, the outcome of which actually mattered to every player on the field. 
Technology killed off a lot of that. 36 million people watched the 1980 All-Star Game. If the 2022 ratings held, 7.5 million people watched the one last night. That's largely because today you can see every player, every night, everywhere. You are now your own sports center. But the rest of it? The rest of it baseball threw away out of greed. Alone among the All-Star Games, just as alone among the major sports championships, there was no artifice, no conceit in the baseball All-Star Game, just as there were no regular season games between the American and National League teams until 1997, there was also no love lost between the American and National Leagues. There were American League fans, and there were National League fans. And although this was lessening with time, part of being an American League fan was hating the National League and vice versa. And this was not the result of some brilliant marketing strategy. This was organic. My grandfather lived until 1986, and he died hating the American League, in large part because when he was just a boy, the National League was all there was in baseball. And then in 1901, the American League came along and stole nearly all the National League stars. 185 guys on opening day American League rosters in the year 1901, 185, 111 of them had played in the National League the year before. Total chaos. National League lineups that had been intact for a decade were destroyed by the American League. And though the leagues ended their player war in 1903, nobody, nobody forgave or forgot. I mean, the next year, my grandpa's team, the New York Giants, won the National League pennant, but refused to play in the World Series against the American League champions because their manager, John McGraw, hated the president of the American League, and John McGraw still did not believe the American League was a major league. When the All-Star Game began in 1933, John McGraw was brought out of retirement to manage the National League All-Stars, and the rumors began of off-the-record bonuses offered to players if the National League won, or if a National League pitcher knocked an American League batter down with a pitch during the game, or injured an American League player on the field. It wasn't just his own demons that drove Pete Rose to knock over American League catcher Ray Fossey and fracture Fossey's shoulder in order to score the winning run in the 1970 All-Star Game. That's the way they played the All-Star Game. I mentioned before that this organic affection for one league and hatred for the other gave almost every baseball fan a rooting interest, not just in the All-Star Game, but in the World Series. A rooting interest that no longer exists. The American Leagues and National League don't exist anymore. They have been reduced to bookkeeping formalities. Adjusting for growth in population, the TV audience for the World Series is now about a quarter of what it was in 1980. Largely because if your team is not playing, why should you care? In 1980, you rooted for the Philadelphia Phillies because you were a National League fan. Or maybe you rooted against the Phillies and for the Kansas City Royals because, yeah, you were a National League fan, but you were a Pittsburgh fan or a Mets fan and you hated the Phillies. And you were watching to watch them lose. When was the last time you met a National League fan? 
One more point, and then I'll stop the, hey, you kids, get off my lawning here. I could list a thousand things on the field that could illustrate the history of the wonderful, vivid, punch-throwing enmity between the two baseball leagues that animated the World Series and the All-Star Game until baseball killed it off because baseball could make an extra $1,000 selling Subway Series caps or Freeway Series windshield visors that came with interleague play. But actually, it's two off-the-field battles that really emphasize just how wonderful and wonderfully petty the hatred of American League for National League used to be. In the winter of 1919, a dispute over a player trade in the American League that previous season got so heated that the New York Yankees, the Boston Red Sox, and the Chicago White Sox actually resigned from the American League and joined the National League. They left the American League, which only then had five teams, and created a Super League in the National League. Obviously, this was resolved before the season started, and they never took the field this way, but it happened. Try that bit of trivia on a Red Sox or Yankee fan. Remember when you guys were in the National League? The second event was 40 years later, and it was far more subtle but maybe more telling. In 1959, 1959, 56 years after the supposed peace agreement between the two leagues, a joint committee met and voted to end a rule about trading players between American League teams and National League teams. The rule was you couldn't trade players between American League teams and National League teams. Until 1959, it was literally illegal within baseball for, say, the New York Yankees to exchange players with the Los Angeles Dodgers or any other National League team without first offering to sell those players that they wanted to trade to every other American League team for the waiver price, $10,000, $20,000, $50,000, depending on the year. Before you could be traded from one league to the other, every other team in your league had to say, nah, we don't want them. So star players were never traded from one league to the other until 1959. This went on for 56 years. And, and when they finally voted to eliminate that rule, there were only 16 teams then, eight in each league, and four of the 16 teams still voted against the rule. And when they finally approved this interleague trading, they only made it legal for a limited interleague trading period around Thanksgiving. And the length of the period that they all agreed to was 26 days. 26 days. The other 339 days, no trades between the leagues. So when did they get rid of that limitation? Not until 1986. And that's why the baseball all-star game is not a big deal anymore. Still ahead on this all-new edition of Countdown, baseball, in fact, used to matter so much that local TV sportscasters used to make up stories. I mean, big stories, make them up. 
to try to get ratings and attention. I mean, I saw one guy in L.A. when I was there go on a TV newscast and claim that a home run that kept the Dodgers out of the World Series one year, that home run didn't count, and the Dodgers should show up at the World Series anyway and demand to play. He said this on live television. The story next in Things I Promise Not to Tell. First time for the Daily Roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The runner-up, Senator Tommy, I'm just going to keep digging here, Tuberville of Alabama. The former Auburn football coach, Tuberville, is a flat-out racist slime who last week wondered if teachers in inner-city schools can read and write. And he keeps defending white nationalists. And then yesterday suddenly blurted, quote, white nationalists are racists. And somebody quipped online, was there a football joke in there somewhere? And I said, Tuberville's only football jokes were his teams. This is so bad now that Senator Tuberville's brother, Charles, who is a rock guitarist, felt compelled to issue this statement about his own brother, quote, due to recent statements by him promoting racial stereotypes, white nationalism and other various controversial topics, I feel compelled to distance myself from his ignorant, hateful rants, unquote. The Tuberville brothers, everybody. The runner-up, Congressman Jim, what do you mean my witness is a Chinese spy, Jordan? Jim has had another brainstorm. The Wall Street Journal reports Jordan will try to gut funding for the FBI unless the Bureau agrees to build its new headquarters, not in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., but in Huntsville, Alabama. So it can be closer to Tommy Tuberville? Why not Wasilla, Alaska, Jim? Remember Wasilla, Alaska? But our winner, Doug Burgum. Doug is the pair of eyebrows currently serving as governor of North Dakota, and he is running for the Republican nomination A with mine. I'm allowed to mock eyebrows. And B, you got to give him credit. He at least recognizes that his odds of getting the nomination are kind of small, small enough that Doug Burgum is willing to buy the nomination. And not just buy it, mind you, but pay you to donate to his campaign. How does that work? Volume, volume, volume! The GOP will give a spot on its first debate stage to anybody who gets at least 50,000 donations of at least $1 each. So Doug Burgum says he will give his first 50,000 donors a Visa or MasterCard gift card of $20. You give him $1, he gives you $20. Volume, volume, volume. Talk about buying votes. Governor Doug Burgum. Hey, Doug, I'll give you 20 bucks to get a pro to go trim your eyebrows. Today's worst eyebrows in the world. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. 
and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Number one story on the countdown now and things I promise not to tell and a personal saga of how important baseball used to be. I had only been the local sportscaster on Channel 5 in Los Angeles for about six weeks when I saw one of my rivals do something I could not believe. Nearly 38 years have since passed, and it's even harder for me to believe it now. In Game 5 of the 1985 National League Championship Series between the L.A. Dodgers and the St. Louis Cardinals, winner goes to the World Series, Ozzie Smith, the famous shortstop of the Cardinals, hit a home run in the bottom of the ninth inning to beat the Dodgers 3-2. Smith was a switch hitter. He could bat left-handed or right-handed, but he had never hit a home run right-handed until then. The ball hit some brick or concrete behind the foul pole in St. Louis, bounded back onto the field, and the Dodger right fielder, Mike Marshall, picked it up and threw it back to the infield just because, like, why not? Two days later, back in Los Angeles, in an infamous sequence that older Dodger fans still grumble about nightly, the Dodgers lost that series on another home run by Jack Clark of St. Louis. And the night after that, I was sitting with my new colleagues at Channel 5, and we had the rival newscast from Channel 9, KHJ-TV, on one of our TV monitors in the sports office. And for some reason, their sportscaster was on at the start of their newscast at 10 o'clock. I have important breaking news, he yelled. 
His name was Scott St. James, and he was always yelling, but this was different. Careful forensic analysis of the videotape by the Channel 9 Sports Department proves that Ozzie Smith's so-called home run against the Dodgers in Game 5 was actually not a home run, but a double. Look! St. James shouted, then played the same videotape every station in America had, showing the same angle of the same Smith home run, landing fair and beating the Dodgers, and then bouncing back off the wall onto the field, and the Dodger right fielder kind of half-heartedly throwing the ball back into the infield just cuz that st james bellowed was just a double mike marshall's throw proves it beyond a shadow of a legal doubt channel 9 sports urges the dodgers to file lawsuits against major league baseball to obtain a restraining order against this travesty and we urge the dodgers to report to kansas city in order to play in tomorrow night's first game of the 1985 world series as the rightful representatives of the national league I don't have a tape of this, so my version of what this buffoon St. James said is recreated from memory as faithfully as possible. It is burned into my memory, and if it's not 100% accurate word for word, trust me, I just improved it. Over at Channel 5, we laughed. The phone rang. It was one of the sports producers at Channel 2, a friend of all of ours. He was laughing. On Channel 9, they were not laughing. They did, I think, this, quote, story, unquote, twice in their newscast that night, and they continued to ride this idea that the home run did not count and the Dodgers should sue right up until the 1985 World Series, which the Dodgers did not play in, ended a week later. But that's not where the story ended. As if the St. James thing had cursed the 1985 World Series... And nobody ever really knew if he really believed the story. He was just trying to get eyeballs on a sportscast nobody watched. The guys who manage the World Series teams get to manage their league's team in the All-Star game the next year. So Dick Hauser, manager of the world champion Kansas City Royals of 1985, was the manager of the 1986 All-Star game played on July 15th at the Astrodome in Houston. That year, the California Angels, whose games were carried on my station, Channel 5, had one of their players produce one of the great rookie seasons of all time. His name was Wally Joyner. He was this kind of goofy first baseman. He was a friend of mine, and even though he was not on the fans' all-star ballots, he was voted in, written in, as the starting American League all-star first baseman. He won with write-in votes. Didn't happen too often. So at the 1986 All-Star Game, Joyner is the starting first baseman, and he comes up in the second inning, and he pops up. But per All-Star etiquette, he'll get at least one more at-bat, probably two. All the starters get two at-bats, except in the fourth inning, when it's Joyner's turn to hit again, All-Star manager Dick Hauser pinch hits for Joyner, sends up Don Mattingly of the Yankees to bat instead of Joyner. Well, this did not go over well in Southern California. Some of us were wondering if Wally Joyner was hurt or if there was something else going on. But over at another of our rival sports departments at KABC Channel 7, that's not where their sportscaster Ted Dawson took it. He went on that night blistering Dick Hauser for insulting Joyner and insulting the Angels and Los Angeles and Anaheim and God and the flag. And he told his viewers to call the hotel in Houston that Dick Hauser was staying at and ask for his room and yell at him. I think they put up a graphic with the hotel phone number. 
Mind you, by the time Ted Dawson did this, it would have been 1.15 in the morning in the Houston hotel. Whatever Hauser had done, what Dawson did was far worse. We could not have imagined at the time how far worse. The next day, the Kansas City Royals announced that Dick Hauser had been admitted to the hospital after several weeks of neck pain. And the day after that, through tears, a spokesman announced that Dick Hauser was taking a leave of absence as manager of the team immediately because he had a brain tumor. In fact, Dick Hauser would die about 11 months later at the age of just 51. The 1986 All-Star Game was the last game Hauser ever participated in, and Ted Dawson had told his viewers to call Hauser up late at night in a hotel and yell at him over an insult to a player. I've done a lot of stupid stuff on TV in my life, a lot of stuff I should have just left alone. In most cases, I've been able to apologize or at least make fun of myself or make it up to the people involved, but these two guys... St. James was fired the next year, I think, and then Dawson, and then Dawson got hired in Dallas, and the next thing we heard in L.A. was he was living with some rich older woman who'd bought him a helicopter. Last thing I saw about him was in 2017. He retired after several years as the sports director of station KBZK in Bozeman, Montana. Sometimes life punishes you first, then you screw up, rather than the other way around. It dawned on me after Dick Hauser died that years earlier in 1980, the ABC station in my hometown here in New York needed a new sportscaster, and they tried out literally every sportscaster on every big ABC station in the country. One week, they had the guy in from Detroit. The week after that, it was their guy from their station in Syracuse. And one week, it had been Ted Dawson from KABC in Los Angeles, the guy who would tell his viewers to call up and abuse the manager in the middle of the night. Ted Dawson's on-air style was breathless, and I mean that literally. He shouted at the top of his lungs, and he read his script as fast as he could. I mean, I can't even recreate it without causing myself a coughing fit. Well, I happened to be watching the night of his first audition show on the New York station. Ted Dawson screamed for about three minutes, finished, and panting, threw it back to the veteran, deadpan, WABC Channel 7 news anchorman, Roger Grimsby. Roger, back to you. And they cut to Grimsby. He was staring to his right towards where Dawson was sitting. Wordlessly, he turned back to face the camera, and with no hint of emotion, Roger Grimsby simply said, We shall now resume the news. shall now resume the news. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown Musical Directors. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. Sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Kenny Main. Everything else was pretty much my fault.
Don't forget, Countdown now also available on YouTube with the cute little animated me. Subscribe there as well. Give yourself options. That's Countdown for this, the 918th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him again while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Bulletins as the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.